Have there ever been times in your life where you have kind of wondered to yourself, Lord, what, what in the world are you doing? Uh, per- perhaps that is a, a question you're, you're pondering even, even now. It's often that we, we don't really know the answer to that question until we're kind of on the other side of a, of a particular trial. From a, a number of passages of, of Scripture, we, we learn that in the midst of our trials, God is, is drawing us closer to Him and uh, teaching us to share in the sufferings of Christ, making us more like Jesus, sanctifying us and, and purifying us. There may be other reasons that the Lord leads us through trials, but these are certainly some of the reasons that God has revealed in His Word. God has not only revealed some of His reasons for trials in our lives, but He has also revealed what our posture, kind of our heart's posture and attitude, um, should be toward Him in in the midst of them. Our God, he, He calls us to trust Him. Through the history of the ancient people of Israel, we learn that God can be trusted because He will keep His word, send His Messiah, and right all wrongs. Our God can be trusted because He is in control of all things, and because He holds the future. This is the message of Isaiah chapters 7 through 12. And if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. That's page 571 of the Bibles provided. We are going to work our way through 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 this morning. Um, and if you're not used to looking at a Bible, uh, just so you know, when you, when you get there, uh, the, the chapters are the larger numbers in the text there, and the verses are the smaller numbers. And so when I refer to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, at 7, and then the smaller numbers after that, verse 14, that's the verse that I'll be uh, reading from or, or talking about. And I hope that'll help you to kind of follow along. Also, there's a, an insert there in your, your bulletin that'll hopefully uh, help you figure out where we are in the sermon. If I haven't kind of verbally made that clear, I hope to do that. Um, but while you're, you're getting situated and ready, let's just remember a little bit of the, the context of these chapters. Uh, so far in our study, the book of Isaiah, we, we've met the messenger. We've met Isaiah. We've heard his message. Isaiah has been sent to preach to the southern kingdom of Judah in the 8th century. Um, his his uh, message is, is very clear. He has been sent to call them to trust in God, called Judah to trust in God, and to believe that God is their only hope of salvation. Uh, Chapters 7 through 12 are simple and complex. They have a very clear message. God can be trusted, so trust Him. If you want the thesis of this sermon, of this portion of God's Word, that's it. God can be trusted, so trust Him. Uh, Of course, this message comes in an incredibly complex historical context. Isaiah's message in these chapters is mainly addressed to uh, what's commonly known as the southern kingdom of Judah. But he will address other nations like the northern kingdom of Israel, Syria, and Assyria. Uh, He will address Judah and these nations by various names. Uh, Sometimes he'll address them by the names of their capital cities or prominent cities. Uh, He'll address Judah by referring to Jerusalem. He'll call the northern kingdom Samaria uh, and Syria, Damascus. And at other times he'll refer to the nations by their leaders. So Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Rezin is the king of Syria. You don't have to write all this down right now. Uh, Rezin's the the king of Syria. Pekah is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, 
I've included a map there in, in that insert to hopefully help you navigate some of these issues. But the reason I'm raising these matters is to hopefully communicate that Isaiah, really, he was speaking into a situation that lacked stability. Uh, nations were forming alliances with other nations and cooperating to threaten other nations. Smaller nations like Judah, who Isaiah is writing to, uh, were in peril. So they were, they were looking for the protection of a larger nation like Assyria. At one level, uh, fear is not a surprising reaction in this kind of situation that lacks stability. But it, it is one thing to be afraid and to look to God for help. And it is another to be afraid and to look to everyone else but God. What we're going to discover is that Judah, this nation that this message is primarily delivered to, we're going to discover is that Judah was looking for help in all of the wrong places. Isaiah lays out reason after reason after reason why God can be trusted. But he first begins simply by saying, God can be trusted. That's where he began, and so it's where we begin. So let's turn now and consider our first point. God can be trusted. And as we do, let's read just the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheir Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not be stand and it shall not come to pass so you see in the first seven verses of our text we are vividly shown the heart of the king and the heart of his people their hearts shook with fear as trees shake before the wind Ahaz and the people of Judah have been frightened by the powerful coalition formed by their neighbors by Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel here called Ephraim their plan was to conquer Judah, to depose Ahaz, and to set up their own king. That was their plan. But the Lord had another one. While Ahaz went out to check on Judah's water supply, you see these things are important to make sure are secure when you're preparing for a siege, the Lord sent Isaiah and his son to deliver a simple message. See it right there, it shall not come to pass. Where there is smoke, there is not always fire. Syria 
also known as Damascus, and the northern kingdom of Israel, again, known here as Ephraim with Samaria as its capital city, are, are nothing but smoldering stumps in the sight of the Lord. The fire has died out. They can do no real harm. So how should Ahaz respond to this word of promise from the Lord? Well, we see that the Lord tells him there in verse 4, he should not fear. Positively speaking, he should be firm in the faith. That's verse 9. God, in short, can be trusted. Sometimes in our lives, we react to smoke when there is no fire. We see what looks like trouble off in the distance, and our fear grows. We are sometimes fearful people. We should admit that about ourselves. And we should pray and ask for the Lord to help us to be firm in faith. Even if it is a real fire, the Lord can be trusted. In an effort to prove to Ahaz that God can be trusted, the Lord invites Ahaz to ask him for a sign. Take a look there at verse 10. Let's start reading in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. You know, as I've been reading this passage to my kids throughout the week, I've been asking them this question. So, so when the Lord tells you to do something, what do you do? You do it, right? The, the answer is you do it. What, what did the Lord tell Ahaz to do? To, to ask him for a sign. But he didn't do it. He pretends that he's really too holy for such a thing. I'm not, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. You know, it's true that the scriptures teach that we're not to put the Lord our God to the test. But when he says, ask me for a sign, you ask him for a sign. Of course, what we're seeing here is a, it's a unique event in redemptive history. We have a divinely commissioned and inspired prophet of God. God is speaking to Ahaz through a prophet for the purpose of unfolding his plan of salvation. Not just for Judah and his kingdom, but for the world. See, signs from the Lord in the scripture are always and everywhere associated with revealing his great plan of salvation. That's why when we ask God for signs in our lives, we're actually doing something unbiblical. I appreciated Ryan's prayer earlier. We're asking for God for something far less than what he uses signs for in the scriptures. Miraculous signs were a part of Jesus' ministry to reveal that he was the Savior, that he was God in the flesh. And Jesus, he rebuked those who asked for signs. Ahaz's refusal to ask God for a sign is actually, for Ahaz, a sign of unbelief and disobedience. Ahaz has already placed his trust in someone else's strength. When Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel threatened him, he did not look to God for help. He looked to the nation of Assyria instead. That's what we learn from 2 Kings chapter 16. You can read that this afternoon. Ahaz, he did not trust in God. He trusted in a nation, trusted in Assyria. He and the people of Judah 
were to be servants of the living Lord and not another nation. Ahaz was not firm in the faith. But God in His mercy informed Ahaz that He was going to give him a sign anyway. He would give Ahaz a sign that what he said in verse 7 was true. God will give Ahaz and the people of Judah a sign that Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel's plan shall not come to pass. The sign will be a child. And this child will prove that God is with the people of Judah. He will prove that God can be trusted. This child shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This sign child had to be a historical figure, a person born in the time period connected with these events. After all, if God is a God of His Word, and He is, then this will have to be a child in whose lifetime the alliance between the two kings of Syria and the northern kingdom would come to an end. Verse 16. And in fact, what we know from history, the alliance of these two kings and their kingdoms came to an end. God can be trusted. Now what is remarkable is that these verses pertain to events in Ahaz's day and they look forward to a future day. We know that because when Matthew wrote about Jesus' birth in his gospel, he said that Isaiah's prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23. Jesus, you see, is the final sign child who proves that God is with us. There are two fulfillments of this prophecy, really. One which sets the pattern, and one which fulfills the deepest realities of that pattern. We'll think more about this shortly, but for now, what we need to remember is that Ahaz and the people of Judah did not need to fear because God was with them. In 12 short years, when the promised child was old enough to refuse evil and choose good, this threat of Syria and Israel would be completely gone. But how? The Lord will raise up Assyria, the nation that Ahaz and the people of Judah had trusted in. He would raise up Assyria to wipe out Syria and Israel. And at first glance, this promise might seem to be a welcome promise, a welcome relief. But verse 17 opens up for us another problem. Isaiah 7, verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The child, you see, would act as a sign of God's presence in preserving Judah from Syria and Israel. But because of their unbelief, the child would also act as a sign of God's presence in punishment upon Judah. He would use the very nation that they trusted in, Assyria, to oppress them. God and God alone is whom we should fear. He can be trusted. And having established this fundamental truth, Isaiah then turns and gives several reasons for why God can be trusted. God can be trusted because He keeps His word. This is what we learn in our next point. Let's read Isaiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah writes, Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maharshal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerichiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maharshal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, 
the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, that's Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Right here we see in these first four verses of chapter 8, we learn that God, He keeps His word. The promised child of Isaiah 7, 14 is born. And, and I do not think that you should be greatly troubled by the fact that His name is not called Emmanuel, but instead Maharshal Hashbaz. Jesus wasn't called Emmanuel at His birth. He was called Jesus. And still what His birth signified was that God was with us. And the same is true of Maharshal Hashbaz. His birth signified that God was with the people of Judah, both in judgment and in mercy. We learned that Ahaz and the people of Judah no longer need to fear Syria and Israel. And we've also learned that Assyria will march down toward the people of Judah. And this could be cause for fear, cause for alarm. But remember where this section of Isaiah began. Do not fear the nations. Fear the God who made them. He can be trusted. Consider the comfort there, verse 13 in chapter 8. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall regard as holy. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. And now just one verse later, consider the double-edged sword of verse 14. And He, that's God, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. See, the Lord is a sanctuary. He's a refuge for the faithful. But He is a stumbling block and a snare for the faithless. God is not indifferent toward how His people respond to Him. He wants us to trust Him. Israel and Judah have failed to put their faith in Him. The Assyrian crisis proves that much. And the results were disastrous. The unbelieving, the unbelievers living in Judah, they started looking to mediums and sorcerers when they should have been listening to God's word. That's verse 19 of chapter 8. Darkness, spiritual darkness had settled on the land. Verse 20, chapter 8. The land is marked by distress and destitution, by disobedience and disrespect toward their king and God. Verse 21. Take in all of the bitter fruit of faithlessness mentioned there at the end of chapter 8. Friends, brothers and sisters, whose word can you trust? We can trust God's word. He keeps His word. He always has and He always will. Have you ever been disappointed by someone who gave you their word only to take it back? Perhaps some of the most excruciating pain that is experienced in this world is when vows are made and then broken. As Christians, we are called to reflect the character of God. He can be trusted because He keeps His word. Our friends, our family members, neighbors, and co-workers should be able to entrust us implicitly when we give them our word. In a, in a world where words are increasingly worthless... Let us be a people whose words mean something and are worth something. Let us be a people who can be trusted because we keep our word. And in doing so, we will be a people who reflect the character of the God who can be trusted because He keeps His word. Let me also call to your attention the disastrous results from failing to trust God and to take Him at His word. We see the darkness descend there at the end of chapter 8. 
And we are tempted to put our ultimate trust in anything or anyone other than the Lord. Remember this. Faithlessness brings darkness, blindness, and confusion. Israel and Judah were faithless. And what will God do in the face of a faithless people? Where they were faithless, God remained faithful. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, we learn that God can be trusted because He will send the Messiah. This is the next point that we turn to consider. God can be trusted because He will send His Messiah. Read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 now. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And in the former times He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But the latter time He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no End. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Remember the conclusion of chapter 8? The darkness that had descended upon the people of the land? Now notice the gracious word that opens chapter 9. But... In the face of unbelief, the unbelievable happens. God purposes to be gracious to His people. The gloom will be gone. The anguish will be annihilated. Verse 1. God's judgment through the mighty Assyrian army had marched into the land through Zebulun and Naphtali. And there, right there, God's grace would be revealed from heaven. He would make... That way of grief, glorious. And to those who have been shrouded in darkness, He would send a great light. Indeed, He would send the light of the world. They would experience joy like they had never experienced it before. Verse 3. And as we read earlier in the service, when Jesus begins His ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that He fulfilled verses 1 and 2. Of Isaiah chapter 9. They were given in Isaiah's day. But fulfilled in Jesus' day. And these promises are certain. So certain that they are spoken of in the past tense. As though they are a thing that has already happened. The people in darkness have seen a great light. On them light has shined. He has multiplied the joy of the nation. These promises because they come from the God who keeps His word, are certain to come to pass. The oppression of God's people would finally be broken. Verse 4, 
It will be broken much the same way it was broken in Midian. Through an enemy defeating itself. That's what God did at Midian. Remember Gideon and his mere 300 men. They gather around the mighty army of Midian at night. And what do they do? They just break some pots and blow some trumpets and yell. And the army of Midian defeats itself. Killing each other. They defeated themselves. And, and I can't help but think of the cross of Jesus Christ. Pilate, the Jewish religious leaders, and Satan all conspired at the cross of Christ. They thought that they had defeated the purposes of God in putting Jesus to death. But it was an act of self-defeat for them. And victory for us. And for our salvation. Yes, through Jesus' death, we have been set free from the yoke and the burden of our sin. Through Jesus' death, the rod of our oppressor, the devil, has been broken. The battle close, verse 5 you see there, may be burned and used as fuel for the fire that brings warmth to warriors who are no longer at war. Our warfare with God has been brought to an end. The battle has been won by the Lord. How? Through a baby boy. Remember when we were thinking about the promises of Emmanuel in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, just a few moments ago. When we came to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3, we learned that Maharshal Hashbaz is but one fulfillment of that sign. The promise of Emmanuel, as I'm sure you can, you can just feel it in your bones, is just too rich to be fulfilled by Maharshal Hashbaz. The deepest realities of that sign are just aching to be fulfilled. And here in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7, the picture of the ultimate fulfillment of that sign is, is filled out just a little bit more for us. The final Emmanuel child will not merely be called Emmanuel, but he will also be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This coming child cannot be a mere man. He must be the God-man. This is Emmanuel. This is Jesus. He was the child who was born. And at the same time, the eternal, uncreated Son of God who has existed from all eternity. He has planned wondrous deeds in the councils of eternity. And He is the God who not merely planned wondrous deeds in the councils of eternity. He is the mighty God who brings them to pass in history. And this should be no surprise to us. For we were promised that God would be with us. And if God is with us, then we should expect that this Son would fully reveal the everlasting Father to us. That's precisely what Jesus came to do. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We're also told that he will be called the Prince of Peace. And didn't Jesus make peace for us by the blood of His cross? Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 tells us this about Jesus. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. He is the Prince of Peace who establishes peace and rules in peace. And just as Jesus fulfilled God's promises of the sign of Emmanuel, so Jesus also fulfilled God's promises to David that we see here. That he would rule on his throne for all eternity. All of the promises of Isaiah, all of the promises of God, are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 
The Lord God is zealous to see these promises come to pass. And indeed, He did. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And He did do this. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to Him in repentance and faith today. Come out of the dungeon of darkness that sin has plunged all of us in and receive by faith the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our rebellion, our sin against God means that we are warring with God. But we need peace with God. And what Isaiah chapter 9 and the rest of the Bible teaches us is that Jesus brought our warfare with God to an end. The eternal Son of God became man. He took flesh to Himself. And He lived the perfect, sinless, and righteous life that none of us have lived. And yet He gave up His life on the cross, dying as a sacrifice for sins, a substitute for all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus up from the dead, proving to us that He has accepted His sacrifice on our behalf so that we might have peace and fellowship with God for all eternity. See, Jesus is the Messiah that God promised here in Isaiah chapter 9. So believe Him. Believe in Him. Believe that when Jesus lived, He lived the righteous life that you have not lived. Believe that when Jesus died on the cross, He was paid the wages, the punishment that was due to your sin. And believe that God raised Him from the grave so that you might have peace with God. And so be forever welcomed into His presence. And if you want to know more about this good news, and please find me at the door after the service, or talk with a Christian friend or family member that you came here with this morning. Let's all think about the greatness of this good news this afternoon. God can be trusted because He sent the promised Messiah. God can also be trusted because He will right all wrongs. And that's the next reason that Isaiah offers the people of Judah. God can be trusted because He will right all wrongs. And interestingly enough, God assures Judah of this, the people of Judah, by speaking about the northern kingdom of Israel. So let's not forget that the purpose of this sign, even from the beginning of chapter 7, is to strengthen faith and to call God's people to trust in God and in God alone. In Isaiah's days, these things still needed to come to pass. The future for Isaiah's audience was still in the future. And the persistent unbelief of the present needs to be addressed. Syria and Israel, in their coalition, they needed to be dealt with. Assyria needed to swallow up those kingdoms. And Judah needed to be disciplined and chastised for her lack of faith. Verse 8 of chapter 9 immediately launches us back into these harsh realities. And Isaiah has four things to say with respect to the present circumstances. These four declarations or, or accusations stretch from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 8 through chapter 10 verse 4. And we don't have time to read all of them now. So let me just kind of go ahead and give you the bottom line on, on each of these accusations from Isaiah. I encourage you to, to read through it later this afternoon. First, in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 8 through 12, what we learn is that the people of the northern kingdom of Israel lack humility. They lack humility. Their pride and their arrogance is pointed out there in verse 9. And we learn that you have a choice. You can be humble. Or you can be humbled. 
Secondly, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 13 to 17, we learn that the people of the northern kingdom lack honorable leaders. They, they lack honorable leaders. In particular, verse 16 tells us that the leaders of the northern kingdom have been leading people astray. A nation devoid of honorable leaders is surely a nation in great peril. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 18 to 21, next we learn that the people of the northern kingdom lack love. They lack love. Verse 19 tells us that no one spares another. And verse 21 tells us that Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. Instead of being one nation as God intended, living together and glorifying the one God, Israel is divided and each part derides and devours the other. They lack love. Finally, in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, we learn that the people of the northern kingdom lack justice and mercy. They lack justice and mercy. Iniquitous decrees fill the laws of the land as the rights of the needy are turned aside. The most vulnerable in society, orphans, widows, and the poor, are preyed upon in greed. And for this, God promises Israel that they will have to leave their wealth behind when Assyria sweeps down to devour the northern kingdom. God can be trusted in the face of injustice. But how does this connect up with Isaiah's audience? How does this message about the northern kingdom connect to Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah? How does this call Ahaz, King Ahaz, and the southern kingdom of Judah to trust the Lord? Well, uh, this message reminds Ahaz and the people of Judah that God is just. And that he can be trusted to right all wrongs, which should immediately call each of them and each of us to look into our own hearts. There's a refrain that follows all four of these accusations. You can see it right there at the end of uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 12, verse 17 and 21. And right there at the end of verse 4 of chapter 10. Take a look at verse 4, chapter 10. This is the refrain that's repeated four times. For all this... His anger has not turned away, and his hand stretched out still. God is not indifferent to what the northern kingdom of Israel has been doing. And it must have been particularly painful for the southern kingdom of Judah to face oppression from a kingdom who should have been their lifelong ally. God is displeased with Israel's deeds, and he can be trusted to right these wrongs. Doesn't it feel... Like so often, so many escape earthly justice. You ever feel that way? Why are so many people escaping justice? And even when justice is served, it feels mm, partial. That is because ultimate and final justice belongs to the Lord. You know, we are, are sometimes tempted to take justice into our own hands when we are wronged. But God's word urges us not to. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I mean, that's really practical counsel, isn't it, from Paul? Never avenge yourselves. In your workplace, in your family, uh, as children. Children, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we can trust God because He will right all wrongs. He is a God who keeps His word. And if you heard what I, what I read there from Romans chapter 12, verse 19, He said this, I will repay. He will. 
We certainly want to work for justice in our homes and in our communities and in our government. We can and should do this. And though we may be disappointed when we see injustice go unpunished, let us never take these matters into our own hands. Let us remember and trust that in the end, our God will right all wrongs. God can be trusted because He will right all wrongs. And God can be trusted because He's in control. That's what our next section, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 to 34, is all about. God can be trusted because He's in control. You know, it must have felt like everything was spinning out of control for Judah. Syria and Israel were pressing down upon them. Then their alliance with Assyria not only failed, but their ally turned on them. Assyria became an overzealous oppressor, but God could be trusted because he was in control. You see, God is sovereign over history and over the nations. He actually uses them, the nations, to accomplish his purposes. And he punishes them when they become proud, haughty, and arrogant. For just now, read verses 5 and 6 of chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against a peop- the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire in the streets. See, here we learn that Assyria... And all that they're going to do to Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel and eventually to Judah is actually being used by God. They are an instrument in the hand of the mighty God. The prediction that Syria and Israel be demolished by the time that Maharshal Hashbaz reaches a certain age is because God has purposed to use Assyria to bring that purpose, that promise to pass. God is the sovereign Lord over all things. He is in control of history. Just as the Lord plans to raise up Pharaoh for a purpose, you can see that in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, so the Lord purposed to raise up Assyria and to use them for his purpose. And once that purpose was accomplished, the coalition uh, crushed, the coalition between Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, once they were crushed and once Judah was chastised, the Lord makes clear that he will punish Assyria. Take a look at verses 12 and 13. When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the uh, the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And now here comes the speech of this arrogant king. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of the people's. And plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. That's what the king is saying. The king of Assyria is saying. Actually, dear king, you were a hand. You were an instrument in the hand of the mighty God. You didn't do these things. The Lord did them through you. The only thing that you could do was what the sovereign Lord permitted you to do. We're going to learn this uh, quite vividly a little later in the book. That when this Assyrian army marches right up to the gates of Jerusalem... They're going to fall short of their goal of conquest. Even though God will send Assyria to punish Israel and Judah for their failure to trust Him, He will not utterly wipe them out. Israel and Judah will come to the edge of extinction. But because God is in control, He will pull Assyria back, and later Babylon back, from completely wiping out Israel and Judah. Because God is in control, He will preserve a remnant a small group of people who are faithful to Him. 
And even this, because God is in control, this discipline from the Lord upon His people will lead to faith. Take a look at verse 20 of Isaiah chapter 10. See how the Lord's discipline leads to faith. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on Him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. God can be trusted even through fiery trials because He is in control. He will stop Assyria dead in its tracks. The lofty will be brought low, as verse 33 says. The New Testament speaks of God's sovereign control over all things being for the benefit of our faith too. We see this in passages like Romans 8, Hebrews chapter 12. Christian, I wonder, have you ever come through a fiery trial and found that God is worthy of your faith? Then trust Him when the next one comes. Trust Him with the one you face now. God works in our lives through trials. He works in our lives through trials. In one respect, He brings them, as we sang earlier this morning. He works through them and He brings them so that in Jesus Christ we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what James says about trials in James chapter 1, verse 4. There's a trial in your life in part because you lack something and you need to be made whole in Jesus Christ. Whatever you are enduring or may endure in the days ahead, know that God is in control and that He uses and is using these trials in our lives to strengthen our trust in Him. The God who keeps His word, sends the Messiah and Savior, rights all wrongs and is in control of history, He also holds the future. This is our final point this morning. Our God can be trusted because He holds the future. Let's read Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Well, friends, this 
This is a glorious picture of the new heavens and the new earth. It is a glorious reality that will one day be brought about by the final Emmanuel child, Isaiah 7.14, by the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9.6, or by the shoot from the stump of Jesse, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. If we are told of the promised king in chapter 7, and we're told what this king is like in chapter 9, here we are told what his kingdom is like. It is a kingdom marked by perfect justice because he is the chief justice. Unlike the faithless King Ahaz and the other failed kings who reigned on David's throne, this final and triumphant king will be filled with the spirit of the Lord. He will be filled with wisdom and understanding, counsel and might. And unlike any other, he will be filled with the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Isn't that the Lord Jesus Christ that we see and read about? On the pages of the New Testament. Is it any surprise that the kingdom of the Prince of Peace is a kingdom that's marked by peace? Did you notice that? Natural enemies, the wolf and the lamb, they dwell together. No longer is the creation groaning and expressing its unrest against its inhabitants. A baby can play over the hole of the cobra. And, and a young child can put his hand into the adder's den. All of this, all of this is, is vivid imagery meant to describe the character of the coming kingdom of God. Not only, will be create, not only will creation be at rest, but the nations of the world will be at rest too. Even the ancient divisions between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they will be reconciled. They'll be at peace. The nations will no longer war against each other because they will, not, they, they will be now united under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself shall be standing as a signal, a banner for the nations. Did you notice that Jesus, when we were reading in Mark chapter 4, that Jesus began to gather people to himself, disciples. And what would he do with those disciples? He would send them out to gather people to who? To him. Jesus Christ shall stand as a signal, a banner for the nations. They will come to him and adore him and serve him. He will... Verse 12, raise a signal for the nations and assemble the, the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Only God can bring about this future because only God holds the future. And only God has a vision of the future that is so glorious. The utopian visions of the political right and the political left don't even come close to the beauty and glory of the real future in the new heavens and the new earth. Their dreams are far too small because their estimation of the present problem is far too small. We can trust God because He has shown us that He has actually inaugurated, begun this future in Jesus Christ and will one day bring it to its full consummation. Friends, brothers and sisters, in the coming of the shoot of the stump of Jesse, in the coming of Jesus Christ, nations have already begun to gather to Him. The banished of Israel and the dispersed of Judah are even now being gathered to Him from the four corners of the earth. We know from Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, that those who have faith in Jesus Christ are children of Abraham. The Apostle Paul in Galatians means to communicate what Isaiah means to communicate. That all those who have faith, whether Jew or Gentile, are a part of the people that Jesus is gathering to Himself. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ are called the Israel of God 
in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. This future has begun in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. And those who turned from their sins and professed faith in Jesus Christ through baptism were publicly declaring that they were citizens of this heavenly kingdom to come. God can be trusted because He holds the future. And on the day that the Father sends His Son to return in glory, all things will be made new. And this vision of the future will be realized. This vision of the future outshines all of the darkness that we face in the present. We can trust God. We can trust God in all things. We can trust God in the face of hunger, in a battle with cancer, in elections, in wars, in the face of injustice and terror and relationships and in death. We can trust God in all things. There is not a single circumstance or present problem that He is not Lord over. And in the words of the hymn writer Thomas More, joy of the desolate, light of the straying, hope of the penitent, fadeless and pure. Here speaks the comforter tenderly saying, earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot cure. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we conclude, I want to encourage you to hear that and believe that. Earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot cure. We trust Him today because we will worship Him on that day. Uh, let's read of our worship on that day. Chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Did you notice the certainty that we will make it safely home to heaven? Look at verse 1 there. You will say in that day. And then the praise of the glorified people of God follows. Our hope of persevering through trials and tribulations is not found inside of us, but in our God. Our hope of making it safely home to heaven is not based upon the strength of our faith, but upon the strength of our God. And so we trust in Him. In God's kindness, He has proven to us over and over and over again that He can be trusted. He can be trusted because He will keep His word, because He has sent His Messiah, and He will send Him again. Our God can be trusted because He will right all wrongs and because He is in control. Our God can be trusted because He holds the future and will bring us into it. Let's pray together.